0: Growing up, Mama always said, you never know how you're going to end up. The life you have in the morning may not be the life you have when you go to bed that night. My name is Dion Lee, and this is The Way I Am Now, the podcast that shares words of wisdom and life lessons through songs and stories. I'm not originally from Los Angeles, and I don't know a lot about its history, other than the bits and pieces my friends have shared with me and the mission stories my daughters shared with me when they were in the fourth grade. As I continue to reflect on Black History Month, I realize that my kids never came home from school talking about any well-known African Americans from Los Angeles, and I'm learning that there are many. Today, you'll hear a story from Regina Jones, a Los Angeles native with quite the story to tell. Her story is chock full of history, so much so that you may want to sit down and take notes. Regina is the mama of a friend of mine. He made the introduction, and I am so glad that he did. (laughs) I went to Regina's home in one of L.A.'s historically black neighborhoods to meet with her. I was greeted by her son-in-law, who announced my arrival. I knew then that the person I was going to meet was a queen. She gave me a very warm welcome with a beautiful smile. And at 76 years, young, she may have more energy than I do. Her mere presence demanded respect. And I, being the daughter of a Southerner, knew that was exactly what I was going to give. She's... A powerhouse. Regina and her deceased ex husband, Ken Jones, founded Soul, the first African American publication dedicated to the ins and outs, ups and downs of black entertainment. It was the first of its kind. Ken was the first African American news anchor in Los Angeles. He launched his own career by covering the Watts Rebellion. Not only did his coverage of the riots give him a voice in his community, but it also placed him in the spotlight. He used his newfound influence and started Soul, the young couple already parents of five now seem to have a sixth child. Hmm. Today you'll hear Regina's story of how she transitioned from Soul's receptionist to its CEO, the result of Kin's rising star. She'll share with us a slice of her ever-changing life with all of its ups and downs. It's quite the ride. Now, the Queen's life did not stop because of my presence, so you'll sometimes hear her two trusty companions bark and play with their toys, a doorbell, or people. Life continues to happen all around her.
1: Ken was the first black television news anchor in Los Angeles. He was a radio uh, news reporter when Seoul began in 1966. And his career launched when he was the primary Black reporter out on the streets covering the Watts riots, or renamed in later years, Watts Rebellion in 1965. Ken was right there, circumstance had somehow or another positioned us that we were in the right place at the right time. And so I happened to be working at the police department as a radio telephone operator broadcasting police calls. And I was the operator that got the first officer needs help call when they pulled up fry over for reckless driving. And so then when I got a chance to get up from my position, I went out to the payphone. I called home and told Ken, this is happening two blocks from our house four blocks from our house. And he went and started to cover. He called the station. He was working as a, oh God, what was his title back then? Um, like a news assistant, which really was running film from the airport to NBC in New York and uh, Burbank and things like that. But he was now in the field with a camera crew from NBC covering the Watts riots. He knew the neighborhood. He knew the signs. He had the jeans and the white T-shirt on. And even Lou Irwin, a friend of his from radio, very prominent a news reporter, Uh, took naps on our sofa during the four days, you know, because that was like their little headquarters. We were at 118th near Central, and it started at 116th in Avalon. And so we could literally hear the burning and the screaming. It was grocery store around the corner from us burned down. You could hear them burning and turning over cars on Imperial, which was two blocks from us. So we were right there. So he was noticed, and doors started to open for him. Uh, It was nine months after the riots that we started Seoul Newspaper. And the reason we started the publication was Ken saw that there was a need for something for our people in our community. I was still working at the police department when we started Seoul. And my job, though, was to take care of the bookkeeping. And that was that was all I really had to do. One day I went in to get the checks and all the stuff. And the uh, receptionist would sleep on the couch in the reception area. So without thinking, I fired her. And so then I had a job. <laughs> So I had to leave the police department to go to work there until I could find a receptionist. And um, at about six months, we decided to go national. So my job then was to open up stations, set up an affiliation like we had here in LA. It was called KGFJ Soul, which was the number one R&B station. They gave us free on the air promotion. And then we gave them two pages inside and their call letters on the cover. So it looked like it was their publication. My gig was to open up radio stations across the country. I started with KDIA up in the Oakland and the Bay Area, went back to WWRL in New York, Atlanta, 29 stations we had set up, and then general distribution in other areas. In those days, you know, there was no computers or self-correcting, so each contract was (laughs) hand-typed. And that was part of my role, too. Kind of to summarize it, Soul became my sixth child. I had five children at home I was raising, and then I had Soul. And what I've come to learn uh, in my maturity, I not only had Soul, I had the Soul staff. That even though I wasn't much older than them, But because I was married, had a business, and had kids, I was the mother figure there, too. They'd be less than 10 years younger than me, but I was the boss. I don't take nonsense, and so I was tough. It worked really well for many people. They thanked me to this day for it, and the ones that it didn't work well for, they had to go. It was really simple. Uh, One of them telling me years later that they knew when someone was going to get fired because I wore my cowboy boots usually to work that day. But nobody ever said a word to me, you know, and I guess it was an impulse of kicking the shit. I was, I had my shit kicking boots on. We went along fine. I loved it. Uh, I love taking over editorial and developing um, different people like Bruce Tolleman. He was with us from 72 to 82. And he went on to become a unit photographer with motion pictures, did some major ones. He's got a Tashin book out now that's fabulous, 1972 to 82. Leonard Pitts was a writer for me that was still in college. He was going to USC, I believe. Sent a letter wanting to write for us. Before i taken over, six months later, he called as a follow-up. Ken was not there. I took the call, told him to come on up, see me, and hired him as a writer on the spot. And he's a Pulitzer Prize winner with a syndicated column in the uh, Miami Herald- And other ones attribute their careers and their opportunities to soul. So it was fun working with all of them. But then there came a time that things started to fall apart. Um, The marriage was going sour. My mother uh, had been diagnosed after a lengthy time with the stroke, with the pancreatic cancer, and the newspaper had no money. And I basically pretty much was in a collapsed, depressed state. I came home doing as little as I could and our then editor, who had been a fan club president for the Supremes, J. Randy Tarborelli, Italian kid from Philadelphia. I let him become the editor and take over doing things. And he was doing things okay until one day they slapped a lien on my house and hit my bank account because the only thing he had to do or communicate with me was pay the tax amount every month that was due for the newspaper. And he didn't do it, and he didn't tell me he wasn't doing it. And so that's when I pulled the plug because I there was nothing I could do. We were We were just upside down. And um, depression got really serious. I thank God to this day for a friend named Willis Edwards, who was at one point the president of the NAACP, Hollywood Beverly Hills branch, who used to call two or three times a week and just leave a message. I'm just checking on you. I know you're there listening to my message, um, but I'm thinking about you and everything's going to be okay and let me know if you need anything. It was so unbelievable at one point that even when we were at the funeral for my mother. And that was in March of 1983. A gentleman came up and I was sitting on the front row with sons behind me, husband on one side, boyfriend on the other side. And this man said, my parents knew your mother and they send their condolences. And he rubbed my hand and he put this fat envelope in my hand, like a card, and it was literally a lien for my printer. And I didn't say anything to anybody because I knew there'd be a riot right there, and I didn't tell them until we were in the car going to the gravesite what had happened. Uh, I was quite broke. Uh, there was hardly a day that I would come home that there wouldn't be some subpoena server or somebody, you know, when, when your business goes bad, <laughs> the hounds are out. And then the losses, the marriage loss, the, the newspaper loss, my mama gone. Uh, What kept me going was the fact that I uh, had five children. And I, I really believe God gave me five kids in the beginning. You know, first one at 16, 17, 18, 19, four boys, and then my daughter at 22. I think. Because I like bad boys, God settled me down with a good boy, with a lot of kids, and then a business to keep me on the straight and narrow. (laughs) So I had to kind of start pulling it back together again. And um, first I signed up to do some temp work to see if I could even go in an office down on Wilshire uh, near uh, Pass Vermont. And... They offered me a full-time job, but I knew I couldn't work in a cubicle. And I thanked them, and, you know, it ended. And then I took a job in uh, uh, Century City. And when lunchtime came, I said, where do you eat? Where do you get food? And they sent me to the snack shop down in the parking, underground parking, with all the gas fumes coming in. And I couldn't afford to pay parking, so I'd ridden the bus and then coming home on the bus, it was the bus was overcrowded and the, the bus driver drove on by me and I'm standing there and tears are running to my face. And I said, you got to get your shit back together. It's as simple as that. And I knew then I had to really step it up. And I got lucky. A friend of mine hired me for two weeks while she was going on vacation. Uh, Myra Lebo, she was the assistant to Alan Ladd Jr. at the Ladd Company. And then after that job finished and she was back, Paul Maslansky, who was producing the first police academy, his assistant went out on maternity leave. And so I was filling in for her. And then he said, when she comes back, we'll find something else for her. You can stay. But at the same time, Dick Griffey, who was the owner and president of Solar Records with the Whispers, Shalimar, the deal, called and invited me out to dinner. And I thought he was after uh, a, one of the neighborhood kids that I'd helped raise who I'd gotten a job at AM Records. And I, you know, met him for dinner in this wonderful no-name restaurant, no listing for the name, you know, with information that snobism they used to have in those days. And I Joined him for dinner, and we sat there and we made small talk for a while. And then he said, I'd like for you to come to Solar as my vice president of publicity. And I said, well, I don't know how to do publicity. And Dick says, well, I'm willing to pay you for six months to prove that you do. And I said, when do I start? So thus began a second career as a publicist for artists. Kind of the, there's a moral issue there for that story. Dick and I had fallen out quite some time before that. We'd known each other from the 60s with the apartment and guys and dolls, nightclubs down on um, Crenshaw Boulevard. And at some point, he was a concert promoter and a club promoter. Uh, He was doing a big concert at the sports arena, and they were calling it the Soul Concert. And I said he couldn't use the name Soul, and he said he could. So I put an injunction on his box office, and it got really ugly until my husband and my attorney pulled out because they thought... I was crazy. They they backed down. I didn't back down. I won't go into the whole thing. I was really crazy at the time. I knew no fear. After a few months we kept running into each other and looking the other way and avoiding each other and finally I went over to him and I extended my hand and I said, You know, we've been friends too long to allow this to continue. Can we let that all be behind us and move forward from here? And hugged him and he shook hands with me and and it wasn't as embracing as I was, but The next thing was a phone call to offer me a job, and I stuck out the olive branch, and he accepted it, and it completely turned my life around.
0: Regina had many songs that represented who she has been throughout her life. Sam Cook's You Send Me, Me and Mrs. Jones by Billy Paul, and Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin. She eventually landed on respect by the incomparable Aretha Franklin. This song is truly fitting of who she is,
1: a boss. And of course, Aretha Franklin's respect as a businesswoman, you know, and a woman, because I was a pioneer. There weren't many women at my level of running their own business, and I was too busy to know the few wherever they were in the country. And, um, you know, I was, had to demand respect, and the guys, I had to always put them in their place. That's kind of how I existed in many ways.
0: What you Thank you for listening. Thank you, Regina, for sharing your story. Tune in next time for another life lesson. The Way I Am Now is produced by myself and Matthew Ingst. Underscore by Matthew Ingst. Respect by Otis Redding. Executive producer, Maylee Williams. If you're enjoying The Way I Am Now on podcasts, let people know about it. You can follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. Also, if you haven't subscribed, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you.